Shut up and sit down. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. The only thing we have to say is... Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. I'm speaking with myself, number one, because I have a very good brain and I've said a lot of things. You know, after listening to that for so many weeks, I'm surprised we don't have like a George W. Bush thing in there. There are so many good There are ones. some good Bush ones. We might have to update well, yeah, that. Yeah, I'm thinking yeah. we're going to have to. Yeah. To get a little old. I'll have to do some audio clip <laughs> magic. <laughs> oh, welcome back, guys. Welcome. Good to be here. How you doing, Philly? I'm good. That's Wee-oo. great. Wee you. Yeah. Um, yeah, Barstool Politics. Um, we'll get the plugs out of the way early. Uh, if you like the podcast uh, or, you know, hate us and want to tell us about it, um, preferably the first over the, the second, um, follow us on Twitter uh, at Barstool Politics. Uh, no, uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L. Um, if you have comments or suggestions or, you know, want uh, have questions that you want us to answer, um, send them to our email address, barstoolpolitics at yahoo.com. I probably need to check that email more regularly. <laughs> you have to check in that. So there could be a, there could easily be two or three questions in there. Let me apologize to any listeners who've been trying to get touch in touch with us via the email. I will make sure to double down on that I, I this week. I was thinking about that the other day. I go, wow, like, I, we at least got like one every couple weeks yeah, or something. There might be some in there. Uh, yeah. right, that's good I'm enough. sorry to mean to interrupt. <laughs> um, and then the other part of this podcast is the beer that we try so you can uh check out all the beers that we try uh and rate on the untapped app you can download on ios or android uh we're barstool politics on there i think you can send us suggestions too about different beers um so there's that as well and uh after that we have a bunch of shit to talk about a lot of stuff yeah yeah um it's been a year. It has happy been. anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary. Trump. So, uh, fifty-two weeks ago, Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. So, we've been a full year. I started thinking earlier today. We've made it through a quarter of a Trump presidency, and then I realized that's not true. No, not we got to go all the way to January. <laughs> yes, we still have more time. <laughs> so, this provides a wonderful opportunity to reflect on this year, uh, where we are. Did we have any idea we would end up in this place? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I was thinking about it, where we're at. We, we potentially are on the brink of war with North Korea, maybe Iran. Uh, domestically, we are racially divided, uh, religiously divided. Uh, there's there's a lot of stuff going on. He's He's been busy, and it's been consequential. <laughs> so... <laughs> All right. Can, is, can we can we make a positive spin on this, Phil, or, or what? I don't know. As as you think back on the last year and how our pol- politics has changed in a way that I don't think we've ever ever seen before, it's truly novel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the thing that I think about I, when I look at where we are, it, it's disheartening where we are as a country. But I, I don't. Is that a is that because of Trump or is Trump just sort of sort of symbolic of this change that's been happening in the country? So in some ways, I, to what extent has Trump 
exacerbated or made these problems, racial divides or political divides worse? Like what extent has he created those? And to what extent is he just sort of representative of the fact that those problems were there mm. and that's what leads to his rise? I, I, I suppose both can be true, right? That, that those problems were there, but he's certainly not helping to alleviate them no i i definitely think he's a symptom of the illness it's it 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 would baffle me to to come across someone who thinks that he is the sole um responsible party for all of the perceived new ills that are happening in the country right now it's it's and i know there is some sort of mentality out there just like there was in the the last administration where people thought obama was the cause of everything that was wrong with the country i happen to agree with some of those things not all of them um it, it's yeah I, I i i don't know like these are I, you talk about the racial divide and like you saw a lot of that at especially at the end of the obama administration that was getting more and more pronounced so yeah, I, I mean, he's definitely exacerbated. Uh, I'll probably see the majority of the issues <laughs> yeah. that we talk about, but I, th- him being a, really consequential to those things, I, I don't know. Like, you know, he's he is the president of the United <laughs> yeah. States, but he is one guy. Sure, like you, you should be able to form your own opinion. It's a classic well. structure agent debate, Phil. Oh, God. Oh, <laughs> such a nerd. Ago, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, Phil, Ooh. you said something that, that kind of made me think, and that's not normal, but uh, you were talking about that. You Wait, wait, wait. You thinking is not normal or me saying something that makes you think is not normal? Two things can be true. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you were talking about that it used to be parties would drive ideology and that the party, yeah. that was the job of the party was to drive, you know, what, what the public was thinking or what the big debates were and that that has switched. And I think that's relevant here as well, where if you would have told me a year from now that the Republican Party would be where it is in terms of its move to the right, but move specifically in a more nationalist, uh, isolationist, uh, immigration direction. And not there's always some of those elements, but that that wing would have turned over or had such a significant impact. And that leaders like John McCain and Bob Corker and, and Flake would be out. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have believed you because I didn't think politicians can do that. But I think to the point earlier that, Nick, you were making is that this is this is really that Trump is there, but there were these. There was a groundswell underneath it as yeah. well. He, he's an enabler. I, yeah, I, I think that <laughs> one of the more surprising things to me over this past year has been not not necessarily stuff that Trump has done, but the extent to which Trump has captured the Republican Party. The, yeah. the extent to which this has become sort of the the new stance of the Republic, or it, it, at least it, it, on the surface, it seems that way. Um, that that's surprising to me. I thought there would be a, a, more of a not necessarily a civil war, but more of a, a debate or a struggle within the Republican Party over its ideas. Or and, and I don't, I, I see that happening at the fringes, but I don't see that happening in the heart of of the party. Hmm. And so there's there's the two things. One is the policy issues, but also the way in which he's confronted the presidency, the the norms that he undermines. I don't think we could have anticipated that. We knew this was going to be an unconventional presidency, but there's we couldn't envision this, could we? <laughs> All of that. I mean, a weekly where he's he's attacking the Department of Justice, bullying them, saying you should do this, you should go after Hillary. I, I guess I, I don't know if the scale of what he's done, I could have imagined that. I mean, at that go point. back to the old episodes. Like, you go, all right. Well, I, I, I especially me. Go, well, you know, me and and uh, Tom Cavanaugh specifically. Right? 
you know, he's going to delegate. He's not necessarily the the main guy there. He's going to surround himself with the right people. He, you know, he's not a politician, so it's going to be a little rough. He'll moderate. He'll moderate, and, you know, it'll take some time, and... Is that really surprising or was it that we were just in denial? Right. Because if you look back at candidate Trump, all of that stuff was there. Yeah. Right? He was attacking people. He was threatening to throw Hillary Clinton in jail. He but was it's making the campaign. Clinton. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Right. <laughs> so his campaign was unconventional. But the thought was, well, he'll have to moderate it. Right. What we've seen. He hasn't. No. He's continued to spiral even more so out of the norms and. Uh, to a point now where we can't even spend much time on some of the little things. We just have to say, oh, he's you know he's he's attacking the Department of Justice, he's attacking the Attorney General. Ah, let's get to the big news. Like that's mm-hmm. stunning. That's so where we're I, at. Can I? I, I want to come at the same issue, but from a slightly different angle. If if we went back to Election Day, right? You go back a year ago, and um, based on sort of your expectations at the time, has this again we haven't had a year of the presidency but has this year been worse than you expected then or has it been better than you expected well the dow is up significantly so i think it's (laughs) significantly better yeah worse much much worse stop <laughs> this, this, you, so the, the, this has gone worse than you imagined. Oh yes. So when you thought about what a Trump presidency would look like, you didn't think it would be this bad. Not at all. I I huh. thought when I was thinking about, and it's hard to go back. That you know, it's only been a year, but it feels much longer than that. I felt like it was his election was an attack on elections that we you know that the way we run campaigns and that that we have to be better. I think what Trump's done since last November has really undermined democracy at a deep level and divide the country. So I think it's I think it's worse than I anticipated in ways that I might not have anticipated as well. But like we talked about, like those problems were already there. He may have exacerbated the problem, right. but they were there. Sure. So, I mean, is it necessarily his fault for taking advantage of a problem that was already there? Yes. Or is that yes. our yes. 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 Let let me finish. <laughs> Or is it our fault for letting it fester for that long where we just didn't care to make any sort of compromise before this point? That, that too. Yes. Two things can be true. That's <laughs> what we should call this episode. <laughs> so I, I, Bill, I, I'm, I'm a little I'm, – I'm not surprised. I, I, I get that. And my first reaction is to say worse. But when I stop and think about it, I think it's not been as bad as really? I expected. When I think back to election night, I, it was really disheartening for me. And I think probably in in ways different than a lot of people felt disheartened. I, it was disheartening as a political scientist, right? Because of all of these kind of values and norms that he had challenged and that we embraced it. Like these things that were I thought were dangerous for democracy. And America was like, we'll sign up for that. And I see in the past year, it hasn't been good. I don't I don't want you to mistake that I, that I think this has been a good year. I think it's been a bad year. Um, and I think he will go down as, you know, not a good president by any means. But I think that when I look back on it, the the damage, I don't know, like when I look at how terrible this first year has been for the Trump presidency, it seems largely kind of rhetorical and PR wise. And and the actual I mean, there have been policies that I disagree with that have been implemented. But in terms of like disastrous for the country, it actually hasn't been as bad as I feared it might be. It's the the incompetency yeah. of the the incompetency <laughs> of the Trump administration has meant that they've been far less successful 
at some of their policy goals than than I might have expected. That's a good point. And I think the you're right. You're right. They are incompetent when you talk about trying to get health care reform or tax reform. They, they struggle there. Where they've been especially good is at creating exacerbating those divisions. So and I, and I think also North Korea, we mm-hmm. keep forgetting that we are edging closer and closer to war with North Korea. I'm seeing experts now that are talking about eh, it's a 50-50 chance or maybe it's a, a 30-40% chance that we go to war. And these are people that are, are moderates in terms of their foreign policy perspectives. You're seeing more and more people saying we're one mistake away from conflict there. You look at the racial divide, you look at the religious divide in the country, you look at this you know, conversation about gender rights, all of those things. He's been very, very effective at, at finding the fault lines and then just driving a wedge into it. Mm. Uh, and for me, I think that's been more troubling and revealing the, I guess, some of the the warts on the American democracy, these underlying yeah. tensions that we haven't dealt with. And he's been very, very strategic at, at making those worse. So. Okay, so this is why, or at least my concept of why it shouldn't be as bad as people say that it is. So in this particular moment, if you think that it is as bad as the worst scenario that you can possibly think of, which is what a lot of people think right now. This is the moment where you need to work towards those compromises. You need to find a solution to the problem that's in in, in office right now. There, there's This is a, a catalyst moment where you can really affect some significant change and create compromise between two opposing sides. Instead, tomorrow, the anniversary of the election, you have people going out in different cities and literally just screaming into the air because they're so upset about everything. And do you, like, I saw that and my head almost fucking exploded. Are you (laughs) fucking kidding me right now? You're going to go out, organize thousands of people to just scream at the sky because you're upset about something. Power to the people, Nick. Shut the (laughs) fuck up. Like, it's just, not you, just the people in general. (laughs) Right. It, like... The fact that it's gotten to the point where there's a at least what you perceive to be a significant problem and you're not coming up with a legitimate, effective solution to that problem and just being upset about it is not – that's not a proper response to what's going on. Nick, you forget Democrats can't win elections. No, they can't because they're snowflakes because they have to go scream into the sky. No power. Yeah. Uh, Phil, you were going to say something. No, I mean, I, I don't I, I, <laughs> I, I get your point that it, it maybe is not the best use of your energy or your time to exact enact change. Do they but have also in Keene? <laughs> probably. I don't know. <laughs> um, um, but at the same time, like there is a sense of how I, I get why the, some people have a sense of like powerlessness in this situation. Right. I mean, sure. I think about this, the tax policy stuff this week in which, again, like the health care bill, Republicans are writing this policy behind closed doors without any input from Democrats. And so if you if you are unhappy with the situation, there's like until the next election, there's really not. I mean, I, mm-hmm. what what it what what do you what do you do? I mean, I guess you go out and you try to make your your neighborhood and your community better in some way. But you um, do what the Republicans did. Yeah. I, I mean, realistically, a, a lot of these issues were. You colluded with Russia to get elected. Right. Well, yeah, <laughs> we'll get to that. You know, whatever. <laughs> hey, well, I mean, in the sense of a lot of those same issues were uh, one party was being blocked up by another party and there was no compromise on certain legislation. And 
a, a significant amount of the American populace felt like they were powerless, you know, based on the decisions that were being made by the administration. That's why, uh, at least partly, in my opinion, why Trump came to power. So uh, legislatively, yeah, and I, I think we may see some shift in that with the the um, the state elections that are going on right now. We don't know the results as of yet, but I I don't know. I haven't seen that kind of groundswell coming from the left as much as it came from the right um, that kind of propelled Trump into power. So I, I wanna, I, I'm going to push back a little Fine. bit. I'm going to I'm going to be. <laughs> I'm going to reveal my bias here, which, if I haven't already done that. <laughs> uh, in that, I, I think I, I get that re- that Republicans were frustrated with that under Obama when Democrats were in control. But that's also a, a bit of a story that has been created by the people on the right. Like under uh, the Obama oh, administration, the Democrats under Obama reached out to Republicans like not infinitely, but dramatically more than Republicans are re- reaching out to Democrats right now. So I, there, there's some truth to that. I understand why Cite Republicans 15 are frustrated. Examples go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Obamacare would be one big one. Um, but uh, I mean, the, I, I get that you know there's frustration in being out of power, but yeah. it, it really feels like Democrats are really being excluded. It, it, and, and I mean, the Republicans have a right to do that, right? They have a majority in every branch of government at this point. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I that. that I don't know. That frustration seems somehow a little more justified now than it did four years ago. Yeah, I I I agree with that to to some extent. Yeah, but like you said, the legislative victories that the Republicans have had in the past year are almost non-existent. Yeah. Um. So I I I think that is. I think it's more of a. As much as the uh, the Democrats are being kept out of the limelight right now, there hasn't been there haven't been many consequential decisions made that have really kind of, you know, separated them from the majority at this point. As of yet, for me, it's not the big policy decisions that are, that are troubling, but it's the eroding of the norms of conduct. It's the undermining of the office of the presidency. I find myself longing for those more conventional political debates that we had in with George W. Bush and Bill Clinton yeah. and H.W. Bush. And I never thought that would be the case. But mm-hmm. Trump has I, I, I even now I I do think we're at the point where I would I would prefer to see Mike Pence in office because that would refer return sure. us to a more you, you know to get rid of all the gains. <laughs> status quo. No, I, I'm not saying that I like Mike <laughs> Pence, but I worry less about the long term impacts on the democracy from Mike Pence. I think policy wise, he would be more efficient. They would get more done. I would disagree more with those policies, but the democracy as a whole, the presidency as a whole, I think would be better served by getting rid of Trump at this point. So it's an odd thing. And and the other thing is, I don't think we can fully appreciate the the d- damage that he's done at the margins and these little no. things that ultimately add up. Uh, history. This will be. We won't. You know, it's like you're, you're. We're in prison analogy, which is just so fantastic. We've accepted that we're in prison. Uh, we, I mean, there, that's. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Phil. No, I was just going to add an example of that. Did you see today? There was a news headline today about how Papa John's had to issue a statement asking Nazis not to buy their pizza. Like <laughs> yes, this is yes. this is where we are. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's it's such a. Yeah. But I mean, even that's insane. Like we've gotten to the point where we have to. Again, where we think there are legitimate Nazis that we have to uh, come up with press statements about. It's just insane. 
everything is completely up for grabs at this point. And none of it is... Re- I don't think anything, any of it is really as bad as we perceive it to be right now. Like, I... I, 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 it's, I, I think it depends on how you look at it. If you look at a policy, I can, I can understand that perspective. But when you think at the, the way in which it's undermining the democratic norms that we've had for so long, that, that's, that's the things where I think it's the danger of Trump is greater than tax reform or undermining Obamacare. It's, uh, it's a yeah, different it, type of threat. Yeah. I, I, no. uh, go ahead. Those sorts of divides, that animosity between the the right and the left and, you know, along racial lines and all these other other lines are the sorts of things that we were talking about that are problematic that helped lead to a Trump presidency. Right. right. And and if those are being even further exacerbated by a Trump presidency, then, yes, it, it even if policy wise, you're not having the issues now. Right. This doesn't bode well for the future. Right. It, it's, this indicates that we're on a downward slope and yes. not an upward one. Right. Well, again, this is kind of what I was alluding to earlier. This is that point where you should be taking this and, you know, overcoming adversity and. There are elements of as much as you should have respect for for the office and and um, representative democracy in general that we all chose to be a part of. There are elements of it that we just kind of take for granted and it's part of the system and, you know, things are what they are and these are the norms and part of the appeal of Trump and, and that whole aspect was we weren't going to necessarily follow that anymore. And, and to some extent, I still agree with that, mm-hmm. but um, he may have taken a little too far, but there are elements of our, our very deep seated bureaucratic democracy that probably do need a little bit of an upending, maybe not, you know, a, a, a complete, you know, uppercut sure. like he's been delivering, but some, some things do need to change. And he's, it's bigger than Trump now because he's unleashed these forces. And now, even if Trump goes away, the right, right is still there. Those groups that uh, are angry and frustrated and mobilized by his rhetoric, are, they're, those are, they're not going away. You can't bring Mitt Romney back and suddenly they're going to say he's wonderful. This yep. is, these are deeper divisions. And so, mm. yeah, it's, it's, I, 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 it's worse. Let me ask a follow-up question then, based on this, what, what we're just talking about. Um, a year from now, right, we're, we're talking on the two-year anniversary of Trump's election. Do you, do you see, like, do you have hope for this next year that that might change? Do you see, you know, we've talked all, all year about whether the Republican Party reaches a point where they push back and say this is not, you know, what we, what we stand for. Or, I mean, do you see people just continuing to slide down this? slide towards animosity and bitterness and hatred or do you see some level where people decide enough is enough well i mean once we're living in the nuclear wasteland and we all <laughs> pledge allegiance to the dear leader i i that'll all it, it'll be sunshine and roses at that point I, the question it's a great question phil and does it come from leadership usually we look to leaders to say let's move the debate in a more positive direction i'm losing faith that that's going to happen because we've had leaders on the right come up and, and say enough is enough. When Flake does this, it doesn't have an impact. So it may fall back to the American public to say, okay, we need to move in a more positive direction, whatever the policy implications may be, but we have to calm this rhetoric down. That's... And, and... Go ahead. 
No, I, yeah. That, initially, I, I think, oh, well, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there are indications that may. So I, you know, this made me think. I, I took a screenshot of this article today. Um, there was a new poll out, right? So this is a CNN poll um, that has overall uh, Trump's at a, at a new low, 36 percent of appro- uh, approval. His previous low had been 37 percent. What I think may be more interesting is that disapproval has reached a new high at 58 percent. 58 percent of Americans disapprove. 48% of Americans say they strongly disapprove. So you're reaching, you're at almost half of Americans saying they strongly disapprove of the way Trump is handling the presidency. And and they went on to say, I mean, the numbers in support of the Russia investigation, who think that's a valid investigation and an important investigation, are at all-time highs. So there there is some reason to be encouraged that if if the party follows the people, that that there might be some level at which people are starting to say enough, right? That we're fed up with this or that we're tired of this discourse or, you know, whatever. I mean, saying that you disapprove of Trump doesn't mean that you're tired of the discourse, right? It could just mean that you're uh, embracing the the sort of absolutist position on the other end. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, is there reason to be hopeful in that? Some of this falls back on the ability of the Democrats to seize on this moment. And if they could come and run a more moderate middle road you know, platform, reach out to those who are frustrated with Trump, there, there is a wonderful opportunity. Mm-hmm. But I think Democrats have to win some offices. They have to win the House back or win the Senate back. They have to win something where they become a viable option again. And then maybe, then you have some mechanisms to make that change to push back. So I, I, I'm feeling a little bit better after that, Phil. Thank you. But but that's also that's also the challenge if you're the Democrats, yes. because you have people who are so the the disapproval for against Trump, you know, the people, the number of people who are really upset about Trump means that there is this sort of diehard left base that wants to see some sort of dramatic step. And you're going to upset them if you moderate. But at the same time, there's this opening that in a strategic grand sense, moderating right now would be a way to really sort of consolidate some gains. It's not an it's not an easy path forward for the Democrats. It seems like it should be, but I think it's a harder thing to navigate than than most people realize. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the same scenario that we saw with the Republicans. I mean. It's much easier to motivate the people who are already motivated than the people who are middle of the road and frankly don't give a shit until something, you know, immediately affects them. It's um, I mean, what's the benefit of appealing to the middle ground when you can just use opposition politics and, you know, put out a poll that says 50, 56 percent voted the way that they voted in opposition to Trump as opposed to anything else? which I just saw that, I think it was in the Virginia race or something like that, um, not a couple hours ago. I mean, this is an interesting transition into the second topic we were going to hit on, which was the the Hillary Clinton and the DNC. And and we're seeing that the Democrats are already screwing this up. Uh, So those of you who haven't followed this, uh, Donna Brazile, who was the interim head of the dnc right she came yep. in at what i can't remember what point she came in she came in at, right at the convention with uh what's her oh, name debbie wasserman right. schultz had that's stepped right. down because of uh yeah so donna brazil various things right yeah. yes <laughs> donna brazil they released segments of a new book that she's got coming out and in this book she alleges uh, and she has walked it back since the first excerpts come, excerpts have come out that uh, she caused quite a kerfuffle. Kerfuffle? Is that what kerf- <laughs> kerfuffle? Kerfuffle, yeah. That's hard to say. Yeah. Uh, suggesting that Hillary Clinton uh, had rigged the process 
by loaning money to the DNC for extra influence in how the uh, the primary played out. Now the question is, was she getting extra influence during the primary or when it got to the general election? The Clintons have come out and argued to say there's nothing wrong here. All we've been doing is, you know, giving a, the DNC a loan. None of this was meant during the primary. It was all fair. But you had some major pushback from the Bernie camp uh, saying that this is a this is totally rigged. Um, I still can't think of the senator's name, Phil. We were just talking about Elizabeth her. Warren. Elizabeth Warren came out and said, <laughs> yes, the election is rigged. Donna Brazil suggested that. Now, in the last couple days, there's been some walking back, but there, there are still major divides within the Democratic Party. And this, this was just Donna Brazil coming out with this book is just ripping the Band-Aid off a wound and pouring salt yeah, on it. It was delicious. It's delicious, yes. <laughs> it, it, Go ahead, Phil. <laughs> it's terrible timing for the yes, Democratic yeah. Party, right? Who's, who's trying to figure out this thing that we were just talking about, how to move forward. And this it started it was starting to feel like maybe the Democratic Party was starting to move on a little bit. And this just like you said, reopens the wounds. And I, and I don't you know, we talked a little bit before we came on the air that there have been so many essentially different uh, parties who have kind of disputed this, claiming that this this is accurate or it's not accurate. And then I guess some of the details have been I mean, so Donna, like an example, one of I guess. This first report came out about this this memo or this this deal that was struck between Hillary um, or her people in the Democratic National Party in which they Hillary helped the, the party was in debt. They gave money to the party in return. They had choice over officials in the Democratic Party and, and whatnot. Um, but then there were subsequent stories about, you know, Donna Brazil saying that she considered replacing Hillary off the ticket right. at one point. Which is about like, after she yeah. fainted, right, that she was going right. to bring Biden in. Right. Which which <laughs> technically can be done, but not single handedly by her. It's like this incredibly complicated. So there, all of the credibility of the whole book was called into question. And I, yeah, it's one of those things where it, it feels like, you know, it's back to this sort of he said, she said right. and this debate that was back in, in the in the campaign and about party corruption and. And she's, yeah, it's been hard to make sense of it, I think. She's part of the Democratic establishment. She is central to this party. And you would think that she would know better. Now, maybe the appeal of getting a big book out and making a lot of money and, and causing a little bit of a stir, or maybe there was a little deeper intent to say, like, this is, I've, I've always been upset about this, let me poke back. But none of this comes out until the book is ready to be, make some money. Right. Yeah, Which is also a little weird, because yeah. she was accused during the campaign of being pro-Hillary, right? She was right. the one who leaked the debate questions to the Hillary campaign. Oh, so a that. lot of this, yeah. like, I was pissed from the beginning because Hillary had control and I wasn't... Some of it doesn't a lot of it doesn't add up. Right. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily. It's a weird like sort of three. You know, I guess it's a 180. It's not a 360. It's a, this sort of turnaround from her. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I don't and then this I don't know. This morning she was on the news saying, oh, no, the process was fair. Everything was all right. The Democrats trying to fix this. But Trump has already been jumping all over this, calling on know, the FBI or the CIA or somebody yeah. to look into this. Uh, it's just it's just bad party politics suggesting to you both of your points that the democrats aren't really ready for this moment yet no they suck they may get there no but they should be better now yes. you don't have time um, no so this it feels to me like this is a this is a the part i, I think this is true of both parties but this is Ill, the, this example kind of illustrates this problem within the democratic party we have a system that is that was based historically on backroom you know, smoke filled decisions in which the party 
picked a candidate and put it out to the people. And, and the party basically was saying, this person represents our views. And then that was tested. The people went out and voted. They picked which of the two parties' candidates they, they most liked. And now in this sort of embrace of democratization of, of, of the party, the primary process, we, we've shifted more towards the people get to choose the candidate. But it feels like we're we're not fully one or the other at this point. Right. You have a party apparatus that's still trying to exert control while at the same time handing over power. This is all the super delegates issue and all sorts of stuff. Happening. And it feels. Go ahead. Yeah. No, oh, what were you going to say? I was just, it happening on both sides. We're on the Republicans, yeah. you have a Republican establishment that wants the party to be a, a certain position, and the yep. public wants something very different. And I could I could see a really compelling argument for that old school, uh, cigar filled rooms where the Republicans say, "Enough of this. We're gonna we're gonna create a or put together a candidate who's gonna be a long term viable option, and we're not gonna mess around with the Trump candidates." But that's yep. not happening. Democracy I, is playing out. I like democracy and i like transparency <laughs> i like transparency all of that on the surface like the idea of the people get to choose the candidate um appeals to me in in sort of in principle but in reality i actually find myself sort of longing for the the days of a, a party picks a, a person and if they do a crappy job picking that person they're going to lose elections right so they're they're accountable in sort of an indirect way but the party actually gets to put forth a person that represents their platform. And in this case, it would have been Hillary Clinton, and it certainly would not have been Donald Trump. It would have been someone else. But that that allows the party to actually control you know, what it stands for, and, and it requires the party to actually make an argument rather than appealing to these sort of mass, you know, you know uh, the, 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 whether it's racial lines or, or all of the, you know, whatever the economic issues it actually requires the party to put forth a platform that they think they can sell right it, it requires it seems like it would drive them to actually be more issue-based but I, I don't is that no I think is that right. just and undemocratic I, I feel the same way that i that's troubling to me that i'm feeling i'm longing for an intellectualism that's missing from the party apparatus and the hope is well if you move in an anti-democratic direction maybe you would get that back but there's all sorts of dangers in doing that as well mm-hmm. we're just seeing that democracy is not not always just pretty a, just an elite. Yes, right. So <laughs> Ivory this, Tower. <laughs> this is a question that I, I've heard a lot of people talk about over the past, I don't know, week or so. What does this do for the stability of the two-party system and the potential emergence of a, an actual viable third party down the road? You know, we would need somebody who studies American politics to have a really informed decision. <laughs> But I, just, no, let's just get three guys together who are drinking beer <laughs> no, the entire time. I'm guessing this is this is putting tremendous stress on that structure. Yeah, and we will see how strong the two party system is. But if it's going to crack, it would seem that these pressures from both sides could cause that mm-hmm. either to see the rise of a more centrist party or a fracturing of those parties and seeing a proliferation of parties on on the on the edges. It, it's not going to happen. No. Oh. <laughs> everything, everything in our... So I, I don't... I'm not an American politics scholar, but I'm a comparative politics person. And and everything... Like, the reason we have a two-party system is because of the rules of the game, the way we do elections. Everything about American politics is designed to create a two-party system. It is designed to essentially everything works against the emergence of a third party it, it is not impossible it has happened in the past before but it it would it would be i mean it would really take i think it would take uh 
there have been examples like in Italy where there were massive corruption scandals with a party that, that could take down a party. But I, I think that the way we achieve change in the U.S. is not through the emergence of a third party. It's by a party loses often enough that they think they have to shift and they have to try to make changes to win more people. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a, I mean, I don't think it's impossible, but I'm deeply skeptical that a third party emerges. I think we might see real sort of, you know, shaking of the foundation of the two parties. You might see changes within the two parties. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I would be, that, that I would was a good shocked. answer. I, I would be I, shocked. I, I, I buy that. I would generally agree with that statement. The The only thing that I would say in opposition to that is that I feel like we've gotten to a point where the parties are have gotten into a, a groove, enough of a groove where the name of the game is purely opposition at this point. And they seem to continually get farther and farther apart, especially right now. And I don't know how much more that the American people and the political system can take of that with the two of them, while the two of them still being effective to, to govern. So I, I don't know if there's some sort of snapback from that or if there, you know, there are enough level-headed people in those parties that go, you know, something needs to change on both ends and we need to come together on this or if they just break down at some point and you know one goes away and another you know a third party becomes the other second party um i i i don't know i i really don't i don't see a good scenario where there's an effective two-party system that's still in place uh that can govern effectively in the environment that we find ourselves in right now mm-hmm. Institutions Comments, are sticky. Question. No, they're, they're sticky. Uh, we should probably move on to beers. We've gone long on these two. Yeah. yeah. So what you got? Uh, so the first beer I had tonight was a Switchback Ale, which is from Switchback Brewing Company in Burlington, Vermont. It says it's an unfiltered, naturally conditioned ale. Um, and I I really liked it. Uh, it was like a red, sort of like a red ale, um, amber-ish. Uh, and I like it had a had a, a, a nice kind of full flavor, but it wasn't like overwhelming. Um, I would drink more of that. It, it was the sort of beer that like when you get to the bottom, there's lots of little bits floating around in it. Ooh, yeah. yeah, I kind of like that. Yeah. I don't normally go for that, but it was good this time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The second one I'm having is a Red Hook IPA, Long Hammer IPA, mm-hmm. um, which Red Hook is out of Seattle, and and it's 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 all right. I actually have to say that I the Switchback Ale. I I started with that one first, thinking it would be lighter, lighter, and then this Red Hook IPA would be a stronger thing. And after the Switchback, the Red Hook just kind of tastes. I don't know, weak. Like I, it's not, it's not bad. I just am not that impressed with it. I of the two, I would drink the Switchback Ale again. You're looking for some deeper flavor. Yeah, Nick, what you got? Uh, so first one I had was a uh, a Big Pond uh, Blonde Ale from Finch Beer Company out of Chicago. Um, Finch normally has great stuff. This was just kind of bland to me. It, there wasn't a lot of um, distinguishing qualities to it. Um, Fairly light, um, kind of citrusy. Not, I, I mean, it's a blonde ale, so it's not going to be overly hoppy. I'm just stuck on IPAs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was just kind of there, yeah. in the middle of the road. I, Nick, I think you, of the of the like last four weeks that we've done this, of the eight beers you've had, I feel like seven of them have been pink. Yeah, that, that can't pink on that one again. That seems <laughs> like a trick. 
Well, Bill picks the beers up (laughs) most of the time, so you can direct those comments and questions to him. I think I've I've fallen into a pattern. (laughs) Um, Second one I had was a, um, which I'm having right now, is a Blackjack Porter from um, Left Hand. And honestly, when when I saw this, I go, I don't want that. I I want no part of it. It's going to be horrible. It's kind of nice. Like it's it's not overly heavy. It's a nice sweetness to it. It's I imagine it was going to be kind of coffee-ish. It's not. It's just kind of a nice light sweetness, um, and it sits really well. Um, hang on, porters can be really good beers. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Um, right under that um, that chocolate milk one that we had a few oh, weeks ago. Oh, that's right. We got to find more of that. <laughs> Which I think was left hand too. Might have been when I when I lived when I lived in Colorado. I lived like three blocks from the Left Hand Brewery in Longmont, Colorado, and those were good years. (laughs) They did did some good stuff. (laughs) They were great. It was very good. Well, that's the end of our beer segment because I have a basketball game tonight. I am in a old man basketball league, and I'm drinking water so I can hydrate. Uh, My athletic ability is no longer good, uh, so I don't want to compromise that <laughs> by adding alcohol Was to the, the water equation. citrusy? Right. Yes. It was refreshing. Mm-hmm. So we have some really exciting speed round topics, uh, and we're going to end with Rand Paul, so stick around. <laughs> the last topic is Rand Paul getting into a fight with his neighbor, so to, don't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. We have to start with another mass shooting uh, this week. Uh, this time it was in Texas. Uh, Sutherland Springs, That's where that was the town, Correct. right? Right. Yeah. Outside uh, of San Antonio. Yeah. So uh, we're fra- they're framing this as another lone gunman attack. He walked into a church, uh, killed 26 people, uh, injured injured many many more, and it once again brings this issue of uh, guns, how the how the policy or how the political process responds. But it's it, it feels it's sort of heavy even trying to think about this topic. I don't know, yeah. Phil. You're from Texas. Uh, does the fact that this is occurring in Texas change any of the other political dynamics, or is it just kind of the same old, same old? I, I unfortunately, I think it's the same old, same old. Yeah. I think that you know, I one of the things that has really sort of stood out to me this week in in response to this is the extent to which this has become normal. Yeah, that it's yeah. just normalized. That we. <clears throat> This happens and we sort of react to it in a like I got a I got a phone uh, like a news alert on my phone and my reaction is sort of well shit you know yeah, yeah. and and it's not like shocking one of the things I saw this this week was talking about how like I, when Columbine happened it was mind like it was yes. inconceivable that this could occur and somebody pointed out that Columbine is no longer in the top ten deadliest mass shootings in the U S so it's something that was just Un, you know, unfathomable to us uh, not that long ago, 20 years ago, is now become normal. And in fact, somebody, el- somebody else I saw pointed out that five, mm, five of the deadliest mass shootings in American history have happened in the last five years, three in the last 18 months, two in the last five weeks. So that, it, that's it's, just be- yeah. it's just becoming normal. Yeah. Which is heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And it falls into the same routine where you know what's going to happen. On the right, they're going to say, well, we can't talk about this right away. we got to give it some time. On the left, you hear conversations about gun control. But it's the same narratives over and over again. Right. And, yeah, there's no hope for any any real agreement or policy prescriptions coming out of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
It, it is it is terribly depressing when you think about you're right Columbine, uh, Charleston, Aurora, Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook, San Bernardino, Orlando. I mean, the numbers just keep adding up Vegas, and up. Yeah. yeah, it's been what, barely a month since Vegas. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you see, now it was interesting, the, the President Trump responded by saying that this was a mental health issue uh, and that it's not an issue of regulating guns. I mean, that's that's also, I guess, somewhat problematic given the, the lack of attention the country gives to mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you just, you lose faith that there's any way of resolving this. But it, it is a hugely, I don't know, just ripping the society or the country apart it's depressing yeah it's really yeah. depressing thanks uh, for starting with this one well, yeah <laughs> just, I, I, well and that, i think that's the part that that is really depressing about the normalization it, it feels yeah. like there is it's not just that it's normalized it's that um i i it it seems like we're just sort of resolved to it like right. it feels like people are are we no longer react with this we have to do i feel yeah. like people still think we have to do something but there it, it it's sort of covered in this cynicism about the ability to do anything about it. So it feels like we're just kind of made up our minds to just live this way, which is, it, it's really, it's, it's weird. I, we, I was talking with my class this morning about this um, because one of my students said something about how there's nothing you can do about this and, and which isn't true. Right. Like when you look around the world, other countries have, there's lots of stuff we could do, right? We could, we could, you know, we could change gun laws. We could change, you know, you could alter the Second Amendment. You could do gun buybacks. So the question isn't about whether there's something to be done. The question about is really about whether there's anything that we want to do. And it comes down to this view on rights and the rights of people to own guns versus, you know, you weigh that against the costs of, of this sort of solid Second Amendment right. And it, that doesn't feel like a discussion that we're having or that we're willing to have to actually engage in what are the costs and benefits and, and sort of recognizing the other side's viewpoints. And sure. and so we just don't have the debate at all. So, so the fact that this happens in Texas, you don't think that changes any Texans views on gun control that they say that this happened that we should have again i'm not we're not talking about the extreme argument of eliminating weapons but just to say that there should be some kind of compromise on how we regulate the number of uh, sem, you know the assault weapons you don't think that there's any movement politically in texas on this well i, I mean this is where it's a weird thing because the the vast majority of americans want there to be limits on right, guns right, right. And, and, exactly. and yet and yet nothing happens and so I, I don't know that convincing I, I don't I don't know I, I'm I'm not convinced that there's any real movement by political leaders to make any sort of change. I think it's another one of the many stories we've talked about over the last few weeks where your preconceived notions are reiterated by this, right? This was a story in which the next door neighbor heard the shooting and came out with his rifle and shot the guy. So I've already right. heard people who embrace this idea of a good guy with a gun fixes this, the right? And other the president came out and said sure. that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Phil. Yeah, I'm talking way too much. But yeah, on the (laughs) other side, if you think that guns are the problem, right, then you're also shown that, okay, a guy with a rifle shot him, but the guy still killed 26 people before he could do anything. So, you know, I I feel like most people aren't, in in fact, swayed by this. They're just... (laughs) confirmed their previous views i talked the whole five minutes i'm so sorry i'm gonna go over texas yeah yeah. (laughs) um no i i i oddly enough what we've been talking about that two things can be true at the same time it's i i do think there's a mental health component of this that realistically needs to be acknowledged by both sides Uh, this was clearly 
a very angry, disturbed individual who had a, a history of, of violence and was dishonorably discharged from the, it was the Air Force, correct? Correct. Um, for abusing his wife and fracturing his infant son's head. Um, and realistically, because of that, he shouldn't have been allowed to own or get a weapon. They didn't file the paperwork. Mm-hmm. So realistically, the laws were in place. Again, not to politicize it, but yeah, I, I mean, the fact that we immediately have to jump to those things, both ends of that spectrum, and just not realize that there's just a real fucking problem that we need to get our heads around right now is is insane. Um, when you think about the contrast between how aggressively the United States fights terrorism yep. and how unwilling to bring that same type of focus to gun violence, it, 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 it certainly you could make progress. You step outside of the United States, you see countries around the world who have very different approaches to this, but all of them are better than what the United States does. It's mm-hmm. the United States and Yemen uh, in terms of gun violence. And, and Yemen is way, way, way behind the United States. So you're saying we should drone strike people? <laughs> Yemen has a Guantanamo is pretty empty right now. That's true. There's lots of cells. (laughs) Yes. Oh, all right. Let's jump to topic number two. I think this is a a slightly better topic. Not better, a more optimistic topic. Uh, So, our president, Donald Trump, is on a 12 day, five country trip to Asia. He is, let's see, he's already visited Japan. He is in South Korea right now. And I believe on Wednesday he will head to China. My sense that this has gone very well. Uh, he had a very good session with Japan. I mean, meeting meetings in Japan, uh, South Korea has been very good. His rhetoric, there's been no more fire. Lots of talk about North Korea, but no more fire and fury. No more little rocket man. Today, he said, talking about North Korea, he said, quote, ultimately, it will all work out. That's the kind of stuff I want to hear. He's making me feel that there is a realization that rhetoric matters. And it, it appears, and again, I always get he always sucks me in with this reasonableness, mm-hmm. but that there there's a sense that we can resolve this through a regional approach and that the rhetoric can be tamped down. So I, I don't know. I'm I'm feeling good about this. Now it's early in the trip. Am I wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're not wrong. This is yet another example of two things can be true, I <laughs> yes. think. Um, I, I think this is actually maybe more than that, an example of having lived in the Trump prison for a year. Mm-hmm. Um in that I, I think you're not you're not wrong to think that this is going reasonably well. Um, but that's because you're willing to dismiss stuff that with any other president would have been, you know, I mean, some of them are stupid, like the the feeding of the koi and him. I don't know if you saw yeah, that story. That was, and that was fabricated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, it was, it was but pretty funny. Some other other stories in which he like was 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 asking for Japanese car makers to quit quit shipping cars to America and start making them in America, right, right. which just shows sort of a, 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 you know, a basic misunderstanding of trade and a basic misunderstanding of the fact that Japanese automakers make a huge number of cars in America already. They mm-hmm. already do this. Um, the, the argument about like North Korea needs to come to the table, which mm-hmm. it sounds good and it's re it's encouraging. And unless you look at it in light of the statement two weeks ago or whenever it was when he ripped Rex Tillerson for trying to negotiate with North Korea, that they no negotiation will accomplish anything. So I, I think you're right in that it's gone relatively well. But I think that that judgment of it having gone relatively well is in light of your incredibly low expectations to begin <laughs> with. Well, he's not doing any more damage. 
that's the other thing. You know, these trips obviously wear him out as well because mm-hmm. he has been tweeting less, still tweeting, uh, and the twelve-hour time difference also slows him down because he, he has to conserve his limited energy right, supplies. Right, and he, it's a different news cycle. Where he, so he hasn't done as much damage as one would have expected. Uh, mm. The other, for me, I, the North Korea is an important element of this trip. But he goes to China, I believe, on Wednesday. For me, this is the most interesting one because China, I think, learned when Trump went to Saudi Arabia. And they lavished praise on him. They made him feel like a great man. From what you're reading, that's what's going to happen in China. They're going to make him feel like an amazing individual, red carpet treatment across the board, with the intent of pulling him in closer to China and to acknowledge that China has a right to be on the world stage with the United mm-hmm. States. And this is something that Obama wouldn't do. Obama was very careful about not getting too close to China because of that. He wanted the United States to stand alone, and it appears that China is going to try to embrace Trump as, as a way to get to that point. Mm-hmm. I, I think if we were making a list of the biggest winners from the Trump presidency, China would, would, be, a, it would be near the top of that list, if not at That's the top of that point. list. Um, and, and I think, um, uh, yeah, in lots of different ways, people have pointed out ways in which Trump's sort of, not the embrace, but, but the sort of stepping back from the world stage has opened the store for China and China has emerged. So China is smart in that sense. If you can already sort of embrace this and then woo Trump even more, China stands to really, really gain from this. Mm-hmm. And as big a story as North Korea is, and it matters, that story matters, the, the nuclear escalation there, all of that matters. The story for the next 100 years is the transition between the United States and China, how those two countries manage that. And I don't think the Trump administration has really figured out how to approach China yet. The no. Obama administration had a pretty clear way of doing that, and the Trump administration hasn't fully grasped how they're going to move forward. And you're right, China's seizing upon this, trying to to build, I wouldn't say a positive relationship, but just to argue that, hey, we have we deserve a place at the table now. Yeah, I I, I agree with that. Uh, where I would probably say they're the most, for the level of importance that they have, they're the most duplicitous world power that we have to deal with. I, I mean, in, in any conception that I can think of. Um while I think the Trump administration is extraordinarily naive and unaware of their capabilities, I think the Obama administration was aware of it, but still allowed a lot of um, Chinese investment in the U.S. and you know the creation of Chinese research institutes in like Silicon Valley, where we can't have that equivalent over in China because the Chinese government doesn't allow that. And I, I completely understand your point. Um, I think there's a difference between naivete and um, just a willingness to uh, accept um, weakness. Yeah, yeah, accept naivete and weakness. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I've totally put words in your mouth, but in my mind, that's the criticism of Obama, right? Is that he was weak on these issues. Yeah. But the deeper irony to this is if Trump or if China is able to work Trump to embrace this new role, Ultimately, it will be the Trump administration that's allowing China to become a global hegemonic power yeah. in a way that the Obama administration didn't. Uh, yeah, it's, it's 
that's that's a big storyline. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll keep following it. All right, topic number. What are we on three? We gotta hurry. You gotta go to your basketball game. I know. That's right. <laughs> the Saudi purge. So while Trump is in Asia, Saudi Arabia has been very busy, both internationally and domestically. So earlier in the week, they arrested dozens. And so this the new Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's his is it his father who's in charge, right? Yep. And so yep. his father has changed that the Crown Prince will now be the next in line. So that's a change. But he arrested dozens of individuals and 11 within the royal family, essentially asserting their control over the Saudi regime and the transition of power. Very, very big deal. Uh, Internationally, they've been aggressive against Iran. Today, they were arguing that Iran had essentially declared war on them by launching a missile from Yemen at Riyadh. Iran denies this. But you see a much more confrontational uh, Saudi Arabia and a much more aggressive government both internally addressing dissent and externally as it deals with regional power. So it, mm-hmm. the Middle East is absolutely heating up here. And a lot of this is because the Trump administration has given the Saudi regime the, uh, the green light to go and do much of this. I say let them duke it out. <laughs> Iran and Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Just let them have it. Yeah. <laughs> just, just go. Just go. Just see what happens. It's, it's been simmering for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Just get it out of your system. <laughs> Phil, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the dynamics are really interesting at play here. Because one of the interesting things is that he was already in line for the throne, right? This wasn't an attempt to sort of to, to establish himself as being in line for the throne. This was an attempt to do away with, with rivals or, or potentially... Not necessarily people that would take the throne instead of him, but people who might cause make his his reign more difficult, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting aspects that we're that we don't the media is not talking all that much about because we as Americans don't care that much about international politics is is the the extent to which the Trump foreign policy has helped create this, which you would you mention the the sort of encouragement or looking the other way the the sort of backing away from iran the these both explicit and implicit signs that the u.s is okay with these moves by saudi arabia which on one sense in one hand you have essentially the creation of stability right we're helping to sort of prop up a saudi an ally in the area that we like that is stable. That's that is you know that there's stability in Saudi Arabia. That's appealing to us. But in doing that, you're actually destabilizing the the area, right? You and you see Israel coming into this in some way in in this sort of you know triangulation of Iran. Um, yeah, it actually is really deeply concerning for what it could mean in terms in the in the more sort of medium term for Middle East stability and peace. Mm-hmm. And when you think about Trump, not only had given a form of green light beforehand, but afterwards, after Saudi Arabia arrested all these individuals, I I tweeted this to you guys earlier, he had two tweets about this. And these individuals that have been arrested, the argument is that they've been treated unfairly. Although, aren't they staying at like the Ritz or something? They arrested them and put them in this five-star hotel. Yeah, that I think that's like that's like prison to a that's Saudi right. royal. It's a five-star hotel that one of the princes who was arrested owns. Owns. Yeah, yeah. that's the irony of there is good. But Trump tweeted out, "quote Some of those they are harshly treating have been quote milking their country for years." So the, the U.S. president is coming out and saying. Yeah, 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 they're roughing them up a little bit, but they've been milking the country for a long time. And it's not as if this is within the 
judicial process. They're just they're just arresting them, saying, "Well, right. it's you know corruption." Uh, Didn't he make some comment about how they they know what they're doing or they know how to do yes. it or something like that about Saudi yes. Arabia, right? Like insinuating that like they understand power politics and they know what they're doing. That should terrify us. That the president turns to an autocratic regime and says, hey, "Those they know how to get rid of the troublemakers." Yeah. Uh, that's 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 bad. That was not a good State Department moment. No, but I, I mean, I don't think anyone is under the illusion that Saudi Arabia isn't rife with corruption. <laughs> Right. So, right. I, and and I mean, realistically, what? What? what go what, ahead, Nick. They're, they're letting women drive now. Come on. <laughs> yes. yes, this softening narrative. They're yeah. perfect. Yeah, you should emulate them. Um, no, I, 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 I mean, realistically, this this is where I have a hard time because there is that pragmatic approach. We know Saudi Arabia, technically speaking, is our ally. As much as I don't like it, they technically are the more stable power in that region, and. If there is a way to kind of finagle some sort of way to destabilize Iran and, and their interests in the region, I, you know, some part of me thinks that's not necessarily a bad thing. I completely understand that, you know, you're setting the Middle East on fire yet again for I, I don't even know how many times it is this year. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what's the the best approach at this point, but. Yeah, if you're talking about internally in Saudi Arabia, don't agree with that. The outward execution of what's going on right now, I don't necessarily know if it's a bad thing. There was It's a shift from the Obama administration, which was unwilling to unilaterally always support Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. There was, let's, you know, let's open up the possibility of working with Iran as a way of playing the two of them against each other. And there was part of that strategy that I thought was creative. I don't know if it would have worked, but now the Trump administration it would have is, worked if they were better at it. Right. <laughs> but they jumped and said, all right, no more Iran. It's all Saudi Arabia. And that has problems because Saudi Arabia is just an awful regime in terms oh, of human rights and causing global instability. Uh, it's it's also a very dangerous regime, but we just don't talk about that. Yeah. There, yeah. there are lots of, of parallels I see between – I realize we're out of time – but parallels between this and the Cold War in which yes. mm-hmm. in the Cold War we embraced awful regimes around the world to win this bigger battle against communism. And it's a similar thing in this war against terrorism. Yep. Um, and, and the weird thing with Saudi Arabia is that they, they in fact, foster some of these really kind of hardline stances. And so Some of the worst. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's disappointing to see the way in which we embrace a, yep. a really an awful regime mm-hmm. for our sort of foreign policy goals. Agreed. So our next topic, I'm gonna just going to throw this to Phil right away. I've got written down this week in Trump Russia. <laughs> <laughs> And I feel you the were saying angle. beforehand that you really wanted to talk about Michael Flynn, and there's been some really yeah. interesting developments there. So why don't why don't you fill the listeners in? As with every week, there are lots of angles we could take on the the sort of Trump Russia story. But I, I think the one that that I find interesting this week is the reports that came out a few days ago that um, Mueller has enough enough on Mike Flynn to indict him and that almost certainly an indictment will be coming for Mike Flynn and his son too right and Michael his son. yeah Michael Flynn Jr or whatever yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. so so Mike Flynn and his son and and what the important thing to keep in mind here is that it's possible that an indictment has already come and that it's been sealed so we you know this is like the Papadopoulos thing so that's a possibility as well um the the charges would almost certainly be at, at least what came down against Manafort, right? So he, Flynn had these relations with foreign governments that he didn't disclose. He lied to the FBI about it. Very similar charges um, to what Manafort faced. The, there are a couple of differences, though, that I think are really interesting, one of which is 
the Trump administration has been able to distance itself from Manafort because Manafort was a campaign official who was fired and never played a role in the White House. Flynn was not. Flynn was a campaign official who became the national security advisor, right? So this is a person who has been compromised, who has lied to the FBI, who has not disclosed their ties to foreign governments, um, and did this while they were the national security advisor. So it makes it much more difficult for Flynn, for the Trump administration to distance themselves and say that you know, this is actually happening in the White House. They, they will still try to distance themselves and say that Trump was not involved. The other aspect of the story that I think will be fascinating is the involvement of Flynn's son. So if Flynn's son is facing indictment, then you have Mike Flynn with these torn loyalties of, of whether he is going to flip on it. It just gives it gives Mueller tremendous power that you you cut a deal on Flynn's son in order to get Flynn to turn on Trump. And, and so for all of those reasons, I think whatever's happening behind the scenes with Flynn is is fascinating and is really going to be critical in the next few weeks or months in, in, in terms of which direction this Trump. It, it, we talked last week about um, if you were in the Trump administration, you would be scared shitless mm -hmm. about Mike Flynn and, and the leak that Flynn that there's enough information to get Flynn. I, I, I sort of wonder if it's strategic again. Well, I mean, at this point, you just fire Mueller and you just be done with it. I think we figured this out last <laughs> week that his best move is to fire sooner than later. I, 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 I think Manafort might not draw, might not have drawn that out, but Flynn might actually lead to the either the firing of Mueller or pardoning or some of that stuff that we've talked about because the stakes are way higher with Flynn. And it's important that we remember that there are two ways that Trump can get himself in trouble. One is colluding with Russia. So if there's some evidence that he was working with Russia to undermine the election, I think that's maybe less likely. I think there are individuals within the regime that were having communications, but this idea that there was this elaborate collusion probably isn't there. It might be. I'm just guessing. I think the real danger is the obstruction of justice stuff. Yeah. And that and Flynn is relevant to that because Flynn is in all those conversations in the White House. What is the president doing? So if I'm Donald Trump, I'm more worried about what Flynn can reveal, maybe in protecting his son, who his son should go to jail. His son is just an obnoxious little <laughs> crap. Right? Being obnoxious is not a jailable offense. No, but Bill. he was one of the he was one of the Twitter guys where he was just he was terrible. Being obnoxious on Twitter is definitely not a, a jailable <laughs> no. offense. In Trump world, it should be. Uh, <laughs> But I'm, I think if I was Trump, I'd be more worried about what Flynn can say and reveal about the obstruction of justice issue than necessarily Russia. I'm, again, I'm, I'm increasingly leaning toward Russia was trying to collude. They were doing everything they can. And there were a handful of Trump officials who may have taken conversations. But I'm not seeing enough evidence there to say that story is the big one. I think the obstruction one is the legal But it's jeopardy. obstruction of justice on the part of the individuals then. It's not necessarily related to Trump. I mean, there's not a lot of evidence tracing it back to him. The firing of Comey, all of that, right? This so if it's I, it's the cover up. I think that's where the people like Flynn are crucial because that's the, the difficult thing is um, getting people to actually testify or to you know rat out so if there is a tie to trump and and there's a there's a hell of a lot of circumstantial evidence right his his sons you've got carter page was talking about his connections to russia again page like this week oh. there, you know <laughs> jeff sessions like there's there is a hell of a lot of people who have who have been dishonest about their ties to russia over the past year sure so i but tying it to Trump is the difficult thing. And if you can 
put the you know you put the screws to to Mike Flynn's son and get Mike Flynn to flip. That's where I think the that this becomes essential because I think you might actually have a chance of tying this to Trump and tying obstruction to dress uh, both the collusion and the obstruction of justice if you can get people like Flynn to flip. And that's where Mueller has been, I, I think, potentially brilliant in the way he's handled this. The other thing that broke this week is we learned a lot more about how much Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump knew about these conversations. Both of them had denied Sessions under oath that he knew anything about anybody in the campaign connecting with Russia. And uh, Papadopoulos and Carter Page have now come out and their testimony suggests that, no, there were these conversations. It's getting much more difficult to deny that. Sessions may find himself get called, getting called back to Congress and ultimately Trump may have to answer what did he know and when did he know it. Uh, yeah, no, it, that is it's certainly Luck- heating up. Luckily for us, Trump has one of the greatest memories of right. all time. <laughs> He has a good brain. We need to add that one to the intro. That's good. Really great brain. All right, we finally got there. We got to the best story of the day. Uh, (laughs) Rand Paul, and I don't know if if all of our listeners would have heard this, but he was uh, assaulted in his yard. There was a violent... I'm going to read from the New York Times here. uh, This violent altercation last week that left Senator Rand Paul nursing bruised lungs and five broken ribs. Uh, Mr. Paul had just stepped off his riding lawnmower on Friday when his neighbor... Rene Boucher or Boucher, I don't, know, we don't know, I don't know how to say his name, a retired anesthesiologist, and I think this is a fun part of this, who lived next door for 17 years, charged and tackled him because and because Mr. Paul was wearing sound muting earmuffs, he didn't realize this. So so picture this in your head. Rand Paul gets off his riding lawnmower, is looking one direction with his big old earmuffs on. His neighbor is charging at him in a, I'm guessing like a football tackle position, rams into him. The neighbor says Rand never saw him coming or heard him coming. Um, broke broke five ribs, like two of them like dis like not just cracked, like yes. poking into internal organs and stuff. Uh, like it, it this, might be months before he's back in DC. Right. This is this is bad neighborly behavior. It's horrible. Now the deeper question is why did the neighbor do this? <laughs> The anesthesiologist is a Democrat. So one argument is that they differ on politics and that that difference ought to be played out. I think the Salon. Com- <laughs> right, the compelling Salon. evidence is really that Rand Paul is just a, a jerk neighbor. Uh, so Mr. Paul, <laughs> Rand Paul, they say, uh, has stood out uh, in the – so it's a fancy gated neighborhood – uh, just south of uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky. The senator grows pumpkins on his property. Compost <laughs> has shown little interest for neighborhood regulations. Uh, some suggest that the origin of the dispute really started over stray yard clippings, newly planted saplings, and some unraked leaves. Uh, you know what? If that was the cause, I would have thrown one of those pumpkins through that neighbor's fucking window. But, <laughs> but if you're Rand Paul, so Rand Paul believes big in property rights. Don't tell me what I can do. When you lived in the live in these gated communities... They want to micromanage every decision. So you have to think this gated community and this neighbor who lived next to him for 17 years just finally had it. Well, I mean, that's hilarious that the the preeminent libertarian is living in living in a gated yes. community. Right. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know. But, do you think this is, is this politics, Phil, or is this just neighbor malfeasance? Uh, I, I think mostly the latter. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think it is politics in that there's something – so beautiful about the idea of Rand Paul basically saying, screw you, homeowners association. I, if I want to plant pumpkins in my front yard, I'm going <laughs> right. to do it. Like that fits with Rand Paul. It and does. Who he is. So, it's perfectly so in that consistent. Sense, it, it's political. 
But in my adult life, I've had like I've seen people get worked up about politics, but I've really seen people get worked up about their yard. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> there was a news story a few years ago, and I I don't remember where it was. I feel like it was in Texas, but I don't 100 percent know. In which somebody murdered their neighbor because their yard they hadn't mowed their yard. It got to be like a foot tall of the grass. There, there might be some like repressed issues, like some underlying <laughs> yeah. issues at play here. But if but, you're yeah. this guy who's for 17 years had to deal with Rand Paul not Just raking, looking his... at those pumpkins, right. seeing leaves out there in the Just... in the cul-de-sac right. around Halloween, they get all <laughs> wet and they got to pick them up. What is it after 17 years that finally leads you to snap? Like it wasn't that like what was it that led him to to realize I right now I'm just go screw it I'm doing it I'm going for it. <laughs> it was the earmuffs. I don't know. <laughs> no, that's the thing that he had put up with it and I'm sure they said they hadn't talked in years. And so this has been it's been stewing with the neighbor and it probably was a mix, right? So maybe he was a little angry about politics and really mad about the pumpkins and the leaves and the and especially this is I mean, all of us live in neighborhoods where you look at that one neighbor and you say, boy, I wish they would trim their tree or mow their grass a little bit more. But in a in a affluent, and this sounds like a very rich neighborhood, gated community, those are details that matter a lot. And if one guy refuses to play ball, oh, that could, that could and, fester. And in this political culture, if that one guy is Rand Paul oh, and you're yeah. a Democrat, right. that might add a little fuel to the yes. fire, too. The lawyer for the attacker uh, noted the incident had, quote, Absolutely nothing to do with either's politics or political agendas. No, <laughs> we, none. We, we could maybe look with a little skepticism at that defense. Um, but I mean, th- but to go back to it, this is a serious injury, and they're suggesting that Rand Paul may not be able to go to Washington for a while, which yeah. actually could have real implications for the tax uh, agenda. Yeah. I mean, it's it. It's it's a little funny, but it's actually when, it really matters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we've what well, we've seen over the last year, right? Over the last nine months, is the is the extent to which one or two votes makes a big difference in a Senate that's this evenly divided. So the fact that Rand Paul can't be there actually could you know has a has a significant impact. Mm-hmm. And to your point earlier, Phil, I do kind of like the idea that Rand Paul is consistent in all facets of his life. <laughs> he doesn't just go to Washington and do this. He really believes in property rights and saying I'm going to do what I want to do on my property. If I want to grow pumpkins, if I want to have my leaves go everywhere, this is what I do. Did you did you say he composts? That was one of the issues? <laughs> that was one of the issues. Uh, that, that's the one thing that seems somehow a little bit out of character for Rand Paul. <laughs> composting. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, you want to assume that it's like just this wild, just tangle of, you know, pumpkins and, you know, just piles of animal shit and, you know... <laughs> eggshells and things like that for composting. I'm assuming it was like a little plot here and there and like a composting like barrel or you know whatever the hell. I would love to see some images in the suburbs of the yard. Right? And, like, and this guy just lost his mind because it wasn't in you know in conjunction with the, the CC&Rs of the neighborhood or some yeah. crap like that. Well this guy's in some serious trouble. Good. They're, they're, they're gonna raise it's potentially a felony what's happened here. He's he, uh, he could. He's may have to go away and think about what he did for a while. <laughs> Rand, Rand Paul idea. strikes me less as a composter and more as a burn your leaves in a trash can sort of guy. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That's spot on. Oh, well, this was good. We got we got a lot done today, Nick. There was a lot of stuff to go through. It is. Yeah. It's, it's busy. Um, yeah. Any any final thoughts on anything, boys? 
I am curious to see how the rest of this Asia trip plays out for Trump. It's going to uh, be hilarious. Well, he's been very, I wouldn't say restrained, because I think Phil's point's right, that he's still been doing little things. But uh, I'm, I'm curious to see what, these are exhausting, these foreign trips, especially 12 days. By the end, you are so worn out. And is he going to be able to keep it together uh, for the rest of the trip? I, I'm curious to see. Yeah, I didn't get to use my Godzilla music or my Godzilla roar, because right. he's... <laughs> And he was in oh, Japan. Yes. And it was, we, I, I realize Trump. the music is playing, but we didn't talk about how Trump was upset that samurai, so, samurai swords weren't being used, or whatever, samurai warriors weren't being used to shoot down North Korean missiles. Yes, that was something yes. I also went to pitch yes. about. Oh. Can't make this shit up. No. <laughs> um, well, thanks, guys. Again, we um, if you like the podcast, uh, follow us on Facebook, uh, at Barstool Politics, Twitter, at Barstool Paul. Uh, send... Um, beer suggestions or comments or questions to barcelopolitics at yahoo.com check the beers out uh, that we try on the untapped app on ios or android uh, if you really really like the podcast share us with your friends uh, and like us on itunes um, that's how we continue to make this grow and you know buy new fancy equipment um i think that's everything that's good awesome yeah. see you next week thanks guys cheers, cheers. guys Sit down.